The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word to our heart. You may be seated. Pray with me. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. Father, we are a people in desperate need of comfort and peace and rest. Father, for many of us, it feels like we come limping into this place, excited in our hearts, overwhelmed in our spirit at the thought of communing with you, gathering with your saints, being lifted up by your word. But Father, we carry into this place the bruises and the scars and the exhaustion of a long week of our own sin of the taunts and temptations of the enemy of the evil that is in us and around us Father we're exhausted so God I'm asking you to feed your people now that you would overcome my own weakness and frailty and exhaustion. And that, Father, through your word, by the working of your spirit, you would strengthen your people. They would receive the encouragement, the assurance, and the hope that can only be found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then, Father, as we prepare to come to this table, Father, our I desperately pray that we would come as a unified people. We would come as a singular body under the headship of Christ. That we would come filled not just with love for you, but love for one another. And a singularity of purpose that we will glorify you here in your world. Father God, we know that you can do these things. For nothing is too hard for you. 
So we ask that you would do it now for your name and for our good. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We continue reading together this first chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. All that He would have us to know for life and godliness is found here. We must receive it. We must believe it. We must obey it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of this glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would, me, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So it would be no surprise for you to learn this morning that we continue our verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. As you are also likely aware, we have spent the last 18 weeks moving with great care through verses 3 through 6 here in chapter 1. We've invested much time and effort seeking to rightly see and believe and think about and celebrate the working of God the Father in his planning of our redemption. Now in short, to sum this up, we found that the Apostle Paul expresses to us that before the foundation of the world, before there was time or space or matter or angels or humans, before literally any portion of this known universe that which can be seen and tasted and touched and held, before there was anything that was other than God, he chose us. When we existed nowhere other than the mind and the wills and the purposes of God, he chose us. The Father chose a specific individual people upon whom he would lavish his endless spiritual blessings. Not because of anything within us, not because of anything that we had done, not because of anything that we would do, not even because of a thing like foreseen faith, but based on nothing other than the good pleasure of his will, God the Father sovereignly set us apart. That is that he called us out of the world and unto himself so that we would no longer be common or debased or defiled by sin. No longer would we be seen by God as a people who are worthy of his wrath, but rather we are his holy saints 
This means that in Christ Jesus, we are seated even today in heaven, completely sinless and blameless and pure before God. Even while here and now, on this earth and in this life and in these bodies, God is doing that work by his spirit that prepares us for eternity. It's that spirit-wrought sanctification that happens in the here and now. As we are already positionally holy before God, he makes us hear what we already are there. As if this were not enough, Paul goes on to tell us that God the Father has predestined us. That is, that he has determined. He has preordained that these specific individual people whom he has chosen would be adopted by him as sons. This is something so much more than being set apart unto God as holy slaves. Something so much more than being called to God as blameless servants. It means that we are welcomed by God into his family as precious sons and daughters. As I've told you often, this is the highest of spiritual blessings. That not only will we enjoy the infinite, infinite pleasures of eternal life, but that in Christ Jesus we shall inherit the kingdom. We shall reign with Christ. That in Christ Jesus, because of our union to him through repentant faith, that we shall reign over the new heavens and the new earth. That we will rule in his name. That we will rule in his authority. That we will rule over his creation in perfect union and love with him forever. Apostle Paul tells us that God has done all of this for one very specific purpose, and that is that the whole of our lives would resound to the praise of his glorious grace. That this is the end for which God created the world. This is the reason for our existence. This is the ultimate goal in God's choosing and predestining and setting us apart unto himself as saints and sons is that we would see and know and celebrate and give expression to his unimaginable riches to his unmerited mercy to a bunch of ugly and stained and rebellious children like us. Now, all that I've just said, all that we have spent the greater part of the last six months together studying, it would be truly unbelievable. It would be a thing that we could not even fathom in our own minds except for the fact that God had said it so clearly within his word. No man makes up a story like this. It reminds me of something that one of the little girls in Little Orphan Annie might say before they lay down at night. The way that they calm their minds and help themselves drift off to sleep. Yeah, things look awful now, but you must know that I belong to a king. He chose me. He adopted me. Yeah, I'm dirty now, but someday I'll be pure. Yeah, I'm clothed in rags today, but someday, someday you will see me in his royal robe. Yeah, I'm stuck in this place right now. Yeah, I look as though I've been abandoned, but you must know that he's coming back for me someday soon and that I will reign over his kingdom. Sounds like a fantasy. Sounds like the thing that maybe a child might dream up. No one would dare to believe such a thing except for the fact that God has said it. So this morning, as we shift our attention off of the work of God the Father and on to the work of God the Son, we do well to ask the question, how? How does God do this thing which he has planned? How can a filthy sinner like me ever stand in the, ever stand in the presence of the infinitely holy God and live, much less find myself under the fount of his endless blessings? Now, I need you to understand that just by asking this question, just in the way that I've framed the conversation, we find ourselves completely out of touch with the rest of the world, even much of the believing world. You see, so many professing believers, so many professing Christians, they believe that they have a solid grasp on the doctrine of salvation. They can tell you a great deal about the Son of God leaving the glories of heaven and stepping down to the humiliation of earth. They have no hesitation in speaking to us about Christ, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, 
dying an undeserved death, and then rising from the grave three days later. But if you go to these same men and then you ask them, but what's the point in all of this? What's the purpose? What did God actually accomplish there at the cross? Why was it necessary for Jesus to do any of these things, and what does any of it have to do with me getting to heaven? You ask this to most folks, and what you'll find that they have an extremely difficult time providing anything close to a coherent or a biblical answer. You see, most folks, they're driven by a shallow and incomplete understanding of texts like John 3, 16. They view God as a God who is only love. Therefore, if you consider what they actually say, if you listen to their words, you consider their meaning, and you try to see the whole picture together that they're presenting to you, you'll find that many professing believers, many pastors, in fact, they leave you with, leave you with the impression that Jesus Christ came and died simply to show you how much God loves you and to try and to convince you to love him back, try and convince you to receive the gifts that he has for you. And while they may not express it in so many words, well, it may come, not come out so simply. If you would pay attention to what they say, actually consider the words. You'll find they're preaching a gospel that says something like this, God is only love. And in this love, God is doing everything that he can to get everyone to heaven. But the real problem is that man just won't love God back. Man just won't let down his guard and receive these gifts that God has for him. And so God sent his son. God sent his son to be born of a virgin, to live, to die, and to rise again, to show you how much God loves you. So we may see all of this. We may see the love of God in Christ, and then we ourselves may be compelled to love him back. We may be compelled to put down our arms and receive these gifts, particularly the gift of forgiveness that's offered in him. Essentially, men have taken the cross of Jesus Christ and they've turned it into little more than an over-the-top gesture by God meant to win our affections. But you people know how wrong this is. You know how far short this falls. Now, I understand that this might be a bit of an oversimplification, but you know how backwards this is because you know that on that final day, you know that when sinful man finds himself standing before the infinitely holy God, the most important question, the only thing that will really matter in that moment is not, how do I feel about God? It will be, what's God's disposition towards me? Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord. This is a statement of intimacy. These men believe that they are connected they're connected with Christ Jesus that they call him Lord. Not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. This is a show of fellowship. This is a show of closeness. Again, I say a show of intimacy on behalf of these people. And they cry out to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These men didn't just believe they knew Christ Jesus. They didn't just have an affinity for Christ Jesus. They worked and they worked in his name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you actually consider what Christ Jesus is saying, you consider what the only important thing at the end of this life will be, it is, what does God think about me? You realize that there must be some kind of subjective reality that happens there at the cross of Jesus Christ long before, objective reality, excuse me, before there can be any kind of subjective reality in our emotions and in our thoughts and in our affinities towards God. There's something objective that must happen. There's something with regards to God's disposition towards us that must take place long before we can ever worry about what we think about him. 
that this is the story of the cross. So this is at least in part why I've warned you so very often that we've got to take great care. We've got to be careful about these teachings that begin with man. Any kind of teaching, any kind of preaching, any kind of gospel that begins with man, that presents man and our feelings, or man and our problems, or man and our thoughts about God at the center of the universe. Instead, we have to always begin with God. We must always first consider God, as the Apostle Paul does. We begin in heaven, and then we work our way downward to man. Now, if we can do this, if we can seek first the mind and the will and the purposes, the activity of God, if we begin with the nature of God and that which he has revealed about himself, namely, his absolute jealousy for his own name, namely, his infinite and unbreakable and unyielding holiness, it is only then that we can possibly see what the Scripture says about us as sinners. It reveals to us something about our own nature, reveals our own depravity, reveals our own guilt, reveals the chasm that exists between us and this infinitely holy God. It is only then that we can feel the weight of these two realities crashing together, the infinitely holy God and sin-stained rebels. If we can come to this place, then we realize that the cross of Jesus Christ is so much more than just a show of God's love for us. That the gospel is not some kind of therapy tool where we sit around and try to convince ourselves to love God back, to just let down our guard and receive the forgiveness that is automatic, the forgiveness that's owed to all of us. We come to recognize that in the cross of Jesus Christ, that in the coming of his son, and his laying down of his life, rising again three days later, God was doing the thing that was actually necessary in order to make this forgiveness possible. I need to be very clear with you. God is absolutely love. The scripture clearly teaches that it was for love that Christ Jesus came. Love of son for the father, love of father for the son, perhaps most unbelievably, the love of father and son for us. I in no way diminish the fact, dismiss the fact, reject the fact that Christ Jesus came compelled by love. And I do not deny that man's ultimate responsibility, that the chief requirement of man is that we would love the Lord our God with all our mind, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And so if a man were to come into this place, if a man were to stand in a pulpit just like this, and he were to tell you that the gospel, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest love story ever known in all the universe, I would not call him a liar. I would in no way call him wrong. But the problem is if we just stay there. The problem is if we stay at that level right there, we don't, we don't press deeper and ask the question, yeah, but what actually happened? What did Christ Jesus actually accomplish at the cross? And this whole thing is just about God showing us how much he loved us. Isn't there another way? When Jesus Christ was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cried out to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. As the beloved Son, the one who was precious and dear and had infinitely been with the Father, as he cried out to the Father, would you spare me? Don't you think the Father would have spared him if there was some other way to do this thing? If this was just about showing his love, God could show his love in a million different ways. Or perhaps if this thing was just about convincing us to love God back. Haven't I spent months and months and months trying to show you that the only way a man can come to love God is by the working of his spirit? That he must reach into your heart? He must reach into your chest, rather, remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? That it's God who gives us the affections. It's the spirit who works in us that we may love God in return. Can't God do this without the death of his son? 
Can't God do this? Can't he just send his spirit, give you new affections, show you his love for him, and accomplish all of this if all it is is a love story? If all it is is a show of God's love for you in order to compel your love back to him? If this is the case, then what's the point of the cross? That's the questions that we should be asking. Are you following me? Unless we consider what, if anything, actually happened at the cross of Jesus Christ, then the purpose of his coming will never really make sense. We will have this vague idea that it's something that we should be thankful for. We'll have some concept that the cross is wonderful and a thing to be praised. We'll have some idea that our sin made it necessary somehow. But ultimately, we won't understand what it's all about. We'll find that we like the joy, the hope, the assurance that we should have. That the cross becomes like some, some magical medallion that we just put out there. And we believe that because that thing happened, I don't understand the thing that happened. But because that thing happened, somehow I'm right with God. If I just believe in this thing, not really thinking about what's happened, that somehow I'll be forgiven of my sins. But you will never fully comprehend all that God has done for you. Your worship will be inhibited. Your joy will shrink. You'll find that assurance is nowhere to be found. So my hope for us is that we would understand what the cross of Jesus Christ really means, what actually happened there, and what this table represents. Now, this isn't going to be a thing that we can settle just this morning. You know that. Because so many of us have got such a faulty view, such a childish view, such an immature and unbiblical view of the cross of Jesus Christ. This isn't entirely our fault. Not everybody steps before us like this and calls us to consider it. But my hope for us over these next few weeks is we dive deep into the work of Christ Jesus and the accomplishing of our redemption. My hope is that we will come to a greater understanding of what God did in the cross. We'll come to recognize that this was not one who came merely to deliver a message. He certainly did not come just to change our minds about God, but that he came to accomplish something, to do that which the Father had planned from eternity past. So with that in mind, we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We read there that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now I think it's obvious who Paul is speaking about here when he says, in him. In him we have redemption. What he means here is in Christ. He's spoken about Christ over and over and over again with regards even to the working of the Father. Paul has just finished up telling us that the glorious grace of God has been given to us in the beloved. This means that there are no spiritual blessings to be received anywhere other than the Son of God. That if you would desire any of these great gifts, if you would desire this holiness, this adoption, this eternal inheritance as sons, that you must come to Christ and repentant faith. But now he goes a step further. He tells us that not only is our union with Christ the only way by which man can ever lay hold of the riches of God's grace, Paul now tells us that this grace can only be offered to us because of something that this very same Christ has done. Remember, we're asking how. We're asking how has God done this thing? He's going beyond saying that we must just be hidden in Christ. It's one thing to know I've got to be hidden in Christ. I've got to be joined to Christ in order to be saved. It's another thing altogether to know, but how is that salvation accomplished? How is that salvation possible? How has it happened? How is it possible for God to show mercy to undeserved, filthy sinners like us? Paul says to us that it is in him. And it's in this that we begin to see a little bit better the full scope of what he means. is all throughout this letter he is referred to in Christ, in him, in the beloved. It begins to open up a bit as we come to this point. 
we realize that it's not as though God the Father had planned this thing and set aside these wonderful gifts of grace in eternity past and that Christ Jesus merely came to deliver them. He's a delivery boy of sorts. That all Christ Jesus came was to tell us a message about something that the Father had done. That's what many men seem to believe, again, I tell you. Many men seem to view Jesus Christ as this one who just came to deliver the love of the Father. See, they imagine that the love of God constrained him against pouring out his wrath. The love of God required that God forgive all men. That his disposition towards men would be one of love and forgiveness and grace and blessedness. And because this is their belief, they think, therefore, all that is left for Christ Jesus to do is to come and tell us about it. To come and convince us to reach out our hands and to receive this thing. Therefore, they view Christ as nothing more than God's chosen instrument. A preacher, a prophet, a salesman, in fact. That he's just a conduit through which God flows his blessings to us. He's a distributor of the good gifts that God has given to us automatically in heaven. But Scripture will not allow us to hold on to such a shallow view of Jesus Christ. Because what Paul says here is that God's forgiveness... That is, all of God's uh, spiritual and heavenly blessings, they're not just offered to us by Christ. They're not just received in Christ. They were purchased. They were secured. They were made possible only by the working of Christ. Do you understand the critical distinction here? I'm, I'm grasping at words, and I don't think I'm getting there. I'm looking at your faces, and I'm concerned that I'm not getting there. I'm searching for ways to express this to you. That we don't just come to Christ Jesus to receive this salvation. Is it, is it as though salvation is something external to Christ and we come to him so that he can reach out his hands and hand it to us? It's that Christ Jesus is our salvation. Christ Jesus accomplished our salvation. Our salvation comes through our union with the one who has done the work. The one who has laid down his life. The one who has purchased our freedom. The one who has given himself to accomplish, to do, to satisfy, to purchase, to guarantee our salvation. At least one of you nodded your heads. So Paul says that in him we have redemption. Now we notice all throughout this portion of Paul's letter that he's always restricting the audience. Who is it that in Christ Jesus has this redemption? He's saying it's not the whole world. It's not the whole of mankind. It's not even just those who live nice and decent, even religious lives. It is us. We. We are the saints. We are those who have been chosen by God. We have those who have been predestined to be adopted as sons. It's the same we and the same us that Paul's been talking about all throughout this beginning to his letter. We are the ones who have received this thing called redemption because of something that Christ Jesus has done upon the cross. He will not allow us to believe that this is a thing that applies to the whole of humanity. Now, this is an offer that we make to all mankind. This is an offer that we freely and genuinely and truly give to the whole of mankind because we don't know who the saints are. We don't know who's been chosen by God. We don't know who God is predestined for adoption. And so we freely and truly offer this to all. But he says that it is only those whom he has chosen. It's only those who is brought to repentant faith who receive this thing called redemption through what Christ has done. That's a very important word, redemption. It's obviously a biblical word. We just read it. It's a word used all throughout the New Testament with regards to salvation. And so as we consider together what Christ Jesus has done, as we consider together how Christ has accomplished this thing which the Father planned. We must have a clear understanding in our minds, what does this word redemption mean, and why did Apostle Paul choose to use that one here? Why didn't he speak of justification? Why didn't he speak of the atonement? 
Why didn't he speak of sanctification? Why didn't he speak of glorification? Why didn't he speak of something else? Why did he use this word, redemption? Now the Greek word here, actually the root word to the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses here, it's the word lutron. Lutron can be translated as ransom. So I think that's a very good place to start. We can start with the idea of ransom because we don't use the word redemption all that often. Maybe you think about redeeming a coupon or redeeming something for a prize, but ransom is a much more, much more common word. It's a word that we're much more familiar with. If you ever watch any kind of movies, you know that a ransom is the price necessary to release someone from captivity. Now, the, kind of at the root of this word lutron is the word luo. I'll tell you that when you're studying baby Greek, when you're someone that's trying to learn to read the Greek New Testament, the very first verb they teach you, the verb that you do almost all of your work with for the first two semesters, it's the word luo. It means to loose. It means to let loose. That's at the root of this word ransom. It's a price that's given so that someone might be let loose. Again, if you watch the movies, you're familiar with this idea. Someone, someone captures, someone kidnaps a rich man's son. So the family, they sit around and they wait for a phone call. They're waiting on the people to call and tell them, what are your demands? So the phone call comes and they ask, how much is the ransom? What is the, co- the cost required to set my child loose? What is the payment that is necessary to secure my son's release? So I think this might bring us to a good, working, biblical definition of not only this word ransom, but the word redemption. That it is a deliverance or a freedom or a release that is secured by the payment of a ransom. So if we look at the Old Testament, we'll find this concept playing out in day-to-day scenarios. Nothing is, nothing is exciting, nothing is over the top as a rich man's son being kidnapped. If you look in Exodus 21, we find there that God gave Moses instructions for what was to happen if a man's ox were to escape and to gore someone. And what the Scripture tells us is, is if this man should have known better, if this ox was prone to get out, if perhaps he had hurt someone else at a previous time and this man had been warned, listen, you need to fix your fences or you need to put down that ox, or you need to do something to protect society from this wild animal. If that had happened, this man didn't heed those warnings. This was the second time that this ox had attacked someone. We read that the ox was to be stoned, and the owner was to be put to death. But see, there's another option there. If the family of the man who had been killed so desired, they could impose a ransom. They could impose a price. They could exact payment from the man who owned the ox in exchange for the life of the one who had been lost. This was compensation for a loved one that was dead. So in Exodus 21:30 we read, if a ransom is imposed on him, that is the guilty man, the man who let his ox out. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give it for the redemption of his life. Do you see the picture? That this man is guilty, he must make recompense. He must make payment. He must make right with the people whom he has offended. That they have set the price and he then must meet the price. He then must make the payment. And we see similar concepts playing out all throughout the Old Testament. Leviticus 25, we read that the Lord gives instructions for what happens if a poor man gets sold into slavery. He borrows some money and he gathers a large enough debt that he cannot repay. So he finds himself enslaved, enslaved under the weight of this debt. He gives instructions on how a rich man can come and pay that price. He can redeem his poor brother. You might also recall the beautiful picture of the kinsman redeemer from the story of Ruth and Boaz is this rich man came and he purchased for himself a precious bride. This one who sought refuge in him. This one who came and laid at his feet and asked him to spread his cloak over her. That he would then redeem her at the fixed price. He would do what was necessary to buy her as his bride. But perhaps nowhere in the Old Testament do we see this concept of redemption more clearly than in the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Enslaved by Pharaoh, 
captured by a foreign king who knew nothing of the true and living God. In fact, Leanne and I were speaking this week as she prepared for her Bible study. It doesn't seem as though the people there in the Exodus, the people that were there enslaved in Egypt, it doesn't seem as though they knew a whole lot about the living God either. And yet they groaned and they cried out under the burden of their, laden, of their labor. They were heavy laden and they were miserable and there was absolutely nothing they could do to set themselves free. So we read as God comes to Moses, Exodus 6 verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. This is the story of redemption. God looked with pity upon his chosen people. God remembered his love for them despite their frailty, despite their weakness, despite their sin. God remembered his promises to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then God revealed himself as he took action to set them free. Through great acts of power and judgment, God delivered them. He brought them out. He redeemed his people away from slavery and unto himself. Not because of some intrinsic work with it, worth within them. Not because they were a holy people in and of themselves. Not because they had done something to deserve his love, but because he had set his love upon them in eternity past. He had determined, this is a thing that I shall do. Then within time, he promised, I will do this thing. And then at the appointed time, he pulled the trigger and it happened. That this is the story of redemption. God the Father planning and purposing and doing absolutely everything necessary to secure our freedom. And we know that this is just a picture. This story of the Exodus, it's, it's a picture, it's a shadow, it's a sign. It's a pointer that's meant to direct our hearts. It should have directed the Jews' hearts, and it should certainly direct our hearts forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the true and ultimate picture of redemption that comes in him. Now, the text that Brother Napoleon read earlier to us, the story of this man named Simeon, there was another, there was another older uh, widow woman there with him named Anna. It says that Anna was there and that she was overjoyed at the sight of the Christ child because she, along with others, she had been waiting for the redemption of Israel. That She knew. She knew that things aren't what they're supposed to be. That there was this constant stream of God setting his people free and then them jumping right back into bondage. They refused to wipe out all the people in Cana. They refused to honor God and they were carried off into captivity. Then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And so I'm not saying that this man called Simeon or this woman called Anna or, or even, even the father of John the Baptist, I'm not telling that they all were able to look forward fully and see the cross of Jesus Christ. They just knew in their heart things aren't what they're supposed to be. At very least, because we serve another God, another king, excuse me, because we serve another emperor here in this place that God has promised us. And so they long for that day. They long for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the Redeemer that would set them free once and for all. So we might be tempted to ask then, but what does this have to do with us? We're not slaves. At least for now, we seem to be the freest people in all the world, the freest people who have ever lived. We're not forced to serve some pagan king. We're not restricted from gathering together in this place and worshiping God the way that he has commanded of us. So what does this have to do with us? We're not slaves. 
But surely when you hear me say these words, your mind immediately goes back to the Jewish people. You remember they, th- they thought the same thing. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and we have been enslaved to no one. How is it that you say we will become free? Church, you must know that this is the heart of man. Not just the Jewish people, but the whole of mankind. How many times have you heard men protest? How many times have you come to men and said, listen, in Christ Jesus, he will set you free. He will set you free indeed. Free once and for all. And then they laugh. They scoff at us. Jesus Christ will set me free. I'm not a slave. You look like the slave. You're a slave to your God. You're a slave to your Bible. You're a slave to your church. I'm the free man. I go and do whatever I wish. But look, you're the one that's restricting your own rights, giving up the right to be offended, giving up the right to no longer extend forgiveness to others, giving up the right to hold on to a grudge, giving up the right to fight back, giving up the right to do anything other than what God has commanded. You're the slave. I'm the free one here. But the Lord answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Dear children, I am, I am sincerely convinced that so much of what men struggle with with regards to God's sovereignty and salvation would be totally rectified if we would hear and believe these words. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, Romans 6.17, Romans 6.20. They all say that we ourselves were once slaves to sin. Romans 7.14 says that we were sold under sin. Romans 8.21, 2 Peter 2.19 speaks of men as being in bondage to corruption. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This is a clear teaching of the whole of Scripture that natural man, man as he is born into this world in Adam, he is a slave. He is a slave to corruption and to Satan and to sin and to death even while he feels himself completely free. Even while he believes that we are the slaves and that he is the free one. Now you know what it means to be a slave. It means that you do whatever your master tells you to do. You do whatever your master desires. That's why Jesus would go on to say in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Do you understand the implications of this? It means that sin is not just a bad thing that you do. It's a slave master. It's a power at work within you to do that which pleases your father, the devil. And that's what makes this whole thing such a problem. That's what makes this whole thing such a problem. Because You see, if this were some kind of external physical slavery, If someone were to come, lock me in chains, and force me to do bad things, I would in no way be held accountable for that. But that's not what Jesus said. That's also not what Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, when he says that you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are following after Satan. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to sin and Satan and death and corruption, and it's our desire to be so. We're carrying out the desires of our own heart and our own mind and our own will because our desire is his desire. 
our desires to do the things, the sinful and evil and wretched things that please our father, the devil. That's the picture that's being painted for us here. That man is enslaved by a heart that loves sin. That we are willing slaves who delight in doing our master's bidding, even while calling it freedom. This is the picture that Paul's painting for us here. I pray that you're starting to see the picture. The whole world lies in slavery to darkness. That their, their wills are in bondage to sin. But is that really so bad? I mean, why is that a problem? Isn't that the definition of freedom? That I get to do whatever I want? I get to do whatever I delight in? Sure, maybe what I do is evil based on God's standard or based on what he says in his word, but why is that a problem if I like it? That's the rational question, isn't it? We know that the problem here is that because man is under that sin, that he is guilty before God. Well, in that very same book, Romans 6, he says that the wages of sin are death. It's not so much the sin in and of itself. It's not so much the evil things that we do in and of themselves. It's what that sin earns us. It's what that sin causes us to deserve. It's condemnation. It's condemnation and eternal destruction. That we are not just breakers of the law, that we are under the curse of the law. That's the thing that men no longer fear. I'll hear from so many men that talk about just the weight of these sermons. Why is everything so heavy? Why is everything so weighty? Why is everything so down? Dear friends, because you must recognize this, the weight of the curse of the law, the wrath of God that all of mankind deserves. And again, that we're enslaved, that we're in love with the sin that leads us there, that we're deserving and destined for the eternal wrath of God, and we're completely unable to do anything about it. We're completely unable to even want to do anything about it. We're completely unable to even desire to turn away from this sin and receive forgiveness. Do you see the picture? This is what it means to be a slave. I heard John Piper say something this week. He said that true freedom, true freedom is not just the ability to do that which you want, not just the ability to do that which brings you pleasure today, but do that which will bring you pleasure 10,000 years from now. Do that which leads to pure joy, to real pleasures, to eternal life in the presence of God. And yet what the Apostle Paul is telling us very plainly here is he talks about the need for redemption. He makes clear that the whole of mankind, the state of the whole world, apart from Jesus Christ, is slaves to sin. But he goes on to say that it is in him that we have redemption. That is in Christ Jesus, we have deliverance from the slavery to sin and guilt and the condemnation that we are due under the law. Remember, the question is how? Question is how? How can God bless wretched sinners like us? How can he adopt us into his family as sons? How can he welcome us into his kingdom and still be infinitely holy and still be a just judge and still be a righteous king? He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. There's this mountain of debt that has grown. There's this mountain of debt that has been stored up, not just a mountain of debt over sin, but the wrath that it deserves. And God can't just turn a blind eye to this. We're seeing it playing out in the world before us right now, by the way. I want you to watch this story of the forgiveness of student loans. There's no such thing. There's a debt, and someone will pay it. And yet that's exactly the way so many men look to forgiveness of God. They act as though there's this debt. There's this mountain of debt that we owe to God, and he's just going to forgive it. He's just going to write it off. It's just going to be as if it never was. That can't be. The debt must be paid. The ransom must be given. The price must be handed over. That's the story of Christ Jesus. 
and is coming and is dying and is rising again to bring us deliverance. So then we might ask, what is the price? What is the ransom? What is the cost? I mean, God has all things, all silver, all gold, all the cattle on a thousand hills. What is the cost that he must give in order to set us free? What is the cost that must be paid in order to clear our debt? What is the price of our redemption? We read in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we know that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the story we read here, isn't it? That it is through his blood. What does that mean? Just that he had to take blood into himself or did he have to just cut his finger and get out a few drops of blood and that was going to be sufficient? Is there something magic in this blood? If we could just get our hands, if we could get our hands on Jesus, I mean, think of all the people that touched the blood of Jesus. The soldiers, the men who whipped him. Was that blood somehow magically doing something in them because it touched them? Well, no, because Paul will also say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.16 that Christ Jesus gave himself up is a ransom for, for us all. That this blood is a representation of Christ. This blood, blood is a representation of the whole of who he is. But not only this, Jesus Christ himself says in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This blood is a picture for his life, his sacrificial death, his laying down of himself upon the cross in our stead. Beloved, this is why Christ Jesus came. This is what we've come to celebrate at this table. Christ Jesus coming and giving himself up as a ransom for us all. Now, God willing, in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack this more. We're going to ask, to whom was this ransom due and to whom was it paid? We're going to ask, why did Paul use the term in his blood and not just say the cross? Not just say the crucifixion, not just refer to the resurrection. And we're going to try and think rightly about what all is entailed in this redemption. Is this just forgiveness of sin or is it something more? Is there freedom here and now? And is it just forgiveness of our sins? Is it just redemption of our souls? But does it involve our bodies too? So in the weeks to come, we're going to seek to unpack all of that. But for this morning, as we prepare to approach this table, we come to commune with Christ Jesus. As we come to feast spiritually upon his flesh and upon his blood, and we recognize all that he paid. First, we look to God the Father, and we recognize that this one who came, this one who shed his blood, this one who was given as a ransom, he was the beloved son the only one worthy of love, the only one worthy of honor, the only one worthy of a true relationship with the Father, that that was the one who he gave. And we praise Christ that he came. That this is not a story about the, about the son trying to convince the Father to love us or a story of the, the Father compelling the son to go, but in a perfect love and unity of purpose that God the Father planned and God the Son accomplished all that was necessary to set us free. So then if you come into this place this morning and you see this table here and you don't know what it represents, or perhaps you come into this place this morning and you know nothing of the cross of Jesus Christ, you knew it was a Christian thing, you knew it was an important thing, you knew it had something to do with salvation, but you've never fully felt the weight of this, I call you to do that today. I call you to consider the debt that you owed God in your sin. I call you to feel the weight of the wrath that should fall upon you in eternity. And I call you to rejoice to turn and trust in Jesus Christ that his payment was sufficient. For those of you that have already been set free, for those of you that find yourself already joined to Jesus Christ and you've come in this place and you feel anything but free, 
You see that sin as it continues to come against you. It continues to lure you back. As you're like Israel, wandering through the wilderness, but you keep looking back over your shoulder to Egypt, wondering if things were better back there. My hope for you this morning is that you come to this table. As Christ Jesus meets with you, as he strengthens you, you will remember the sweetness of that freedom. You remember the joy that comes from knowing that not just today will I enjoy that which I have been called to do, but 10,000 years from now I will look back and say, praise God that you set me free from sin and called me as a bondservant to Christ. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we, your people, have been redeemed. Father, we recognize that what this table represents is a debt that we could not possibly pay. That's why hell is forever. The reason that men suffer your wrath for all eternity is because they never get any closer to paying off the debt that they owe because it is infinite. And so it would take the infinitely worthy Son of God to pay that debt. And so we thank you, Father, for what this table represents, his broken body, his spilled blood, all that he did on our behalf to ransom us, to redeem us, and to set us free. So, Father, we pray that you would meet us here at this table now by the working of your Spirit in ways that we cannot possibly comprehend. You would give us strength for tomorrow. For it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.